This is KDLL, 91.9 FM, Kenai, Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned in to the Kenai Conversation. I'm Hunter Morrison. This week on the Kenai Conversation, we're sharing a Kenai Peninsula College showcase presentation titled Breaking Trail, Reflections on the Iditarod. The December 7th presentation features Libby Riddles, the first woman to ever win the Iditarod, and Jeff Schultz, the official Iditarod photographer. They spoke of their adventures and experiences with what is known as the last great race on Earth. Hi, how's everybody doing tonight? Good. My name is John Messick. I'm an assistant professor of English here and one of the co-coordinators of the KPC Showcase. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. for those of you who have not been to a showcase before, the showcase, KBC showcases are funded in part by a generous grant from the Anna Fawcett Goodrich Humanities Program. It's part of the Damon Memorial Fund, so we want to thank them for bringing two very special guests here tonight to discuss 40 years of Iditarod life, as it were. We have uh, with us tonight Libby Riddles, for those of you who don't know who Libby Riddles is, she's the 1985 Iditarod champion, the author of Race Across Alaska, and the first woman to win the race. Uh, We also have with us Jeff Schultz. For those of you who do not know Jeff Schultz's name, he's been taking pictures of that very same race since 1981. His photographs adorn uh, many a calendar cover and have done so for a very long time. Uh, They're here to talk to us tonight about their lives with dogs in the varying capacities. I see a lot of Iditarod paraphernalia out in the crowd tonight, so uh, I think we have a supportive group of folks. Um, With that, I don't want to stand up here and yammer all night. I'd like to start things off with Libby Riddles. So Libby, thank you very much for coming. Well, this is kind of different for me. Um, look, I even brought notes so I don't forget and lose track of what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, what could be more Alaskan than the Iditarod, right? Uh, people kind of still don't understand why we do this thing, but if you live up here and you know the winter, I mean, there's nothing more Alaskan than mushing a team of half crazy huskies a thousand miles through the woods in the middle of the winter, do you think? <laughs> and I think one of the reasons that we do it, and you know, part of what I like about it, you know, is how, you know, the feel, the sense of history that comes with it. You know, when you live up here and see how brutal the winters are, it's so amazing to think of how these native people came up with this idea for travel. But basically, if they weren't ingenious, they would have never survived up here. And they didn't have any other animals to work with, to speak with. So um, so even back in the old days, you know, like if you had just even a couple of dogs, you were going to be a lot more likely to survive. And so the dogs were valued members of the villages. Um, the people that could work with the dogs were also valued and respected. And most people never even heard of this kind of travel until you know, the early explorers used the dogs to you know, conquer the North and the South Pole. And if you hadn't heard about dog teams by then, you were going to hear about it in the serum run. 
story that, and part of why everybody still knows that story today is because back in those days, dog team was the only way to get that serum to those people in the middle of the winter in a place as remote as Nome. So, you know, our history has so much of this dog mushing in it, and it's such an ancient connection. Um, something I just learned last summer that's really just sticks in my imagination is that some of the oldest remains of domestic dogs they've ever found was a 10,000-year-old dog in northern Siberia still has patches of the harness with the remains. I mean, that's, that's how long this goes back. And even more amazing than that is that the DNA of that dog still somewhat matches the dogs that we use today. So with dogs in general, of course, we've got a very special relationship with them because it was the first animal to be domesticated. They've been with us the longest. They know us the best, and for some reason, they still like us anyway. <laughs> so um, the dogs that we use, of course, they did a um, I don't know how many of you all have ever, ever had a husky, but they're a little different than other types of dogs. It is one of the oldest dog breeds. Um, and you know, they're great. They can make great pets and things like that, but you gotta know that the husky is gonna be the dog that's gonna run away from home, guaranteed. It's going to eat your chickens, you know. Um, they'll hunt game when they get loose. They like a good dog fight every once in a while. It's, it's a little bit less domesticated of a dog in some ways than the regular dog. But that's part of why I loved them. Um, as a kid, I think I was a lot more into cats because they are independent. And I like wild animals. And I thought dogs were kind of a little bit too much yes boss. but. Um, but the Husky's perfect, because they're just crazy chaos, you know? So it always cracks me up when people say, oh, those poor dogs, they make them do this. I mean, you can force a Husky to do something about as much as you can force a cat to do something, <laughs> if you can relate to that. You have to win their trust, you know? So the dogs, of course, are a big part of this. And, you know, people have asked me over the years, how did I get started in this kind of a lifestyle? You know, sometimes I just think that with each of us, you know, we've all got some things that we're naturally drawn to, and there's not much of an explanation for it. And I was always a kid that loved being outside, loved being around animals, was lucky enough to grow in, up in a family where we did a lot of things outside and had a lot of animals. And, um, you know, of course, a lot of the stuff I do get from my family, like um, even my parents' interest in like my dad had history in Navajo country, and so his interest in native art, and my parents you know, both like taking us across the border when we lived in Washington to go see the totem art. You know, that really helped me get a start in um, appreciating native culture and wanting to know more about that, which is part of how I got to Alaska. Anyway, I also had like an alternative education. I read a lot as a kid. I made up my mind when I was a young teenager that I wanted a life of quality. And for me, a life of quality meant getting to the wilderness as fast as I could. And I come from northern states, so when I thought of wilderness, I thought of coming to Alaska, and coming up here was the best thing I ever did for myself. And I came up here as green as anybody who's ever come up here. I wasn't even 17 years old when I came up. But I came with this confidence that came, I think, with the alternative education, that I was the kind of person who knew how to learn things. 
and I can figure out how to become a good Alaskan, and I set about doing it the first thing when I got up here. And I always wanted a bunch of animals, but like I said, I never knew it was gonna be dogs, but in Alaska, um, that made the most sense. And, you know, I was not, you know, I, I, when I came up here, I didn't want to end up in an apartment in Anchorage working nine to five. That's not why I moved to Alaska. You know, so I got right into seasonal work, and that makes a lot more sense in a lot of ways. You work in the summers, and you live as cheap as you can, so you don't have to work in the winters, too. So my first 20 years in Alaska, I never spent more than 25 bucks a month for rent, because I'd live in a, you know dry cabins and off the grid and whatnot. I worked for the Bureau of Land Management. Um, so this is another thing that kind of part of the organic growth of my story is when I came to Alaska, they had um, not too soon before that they had passed the Title IX laws. So all over the state and all over the country, all these companies that had traditionally only hired guys were hiring women. And I figured out any kind of non-traditional women's work was going to pay better. And if you gave me the training, I could figure it out. So I mean, I worked as, I was one of the first girls to ever put gas at a gas station in Anchorage. <laughs> and um, oh gosh, I, I worked at Pepsi-Cola's warehouse at a job that was so physically demanding all those guys there at the warehouse were taking bets on how many days I would survive. But by then I had a dog team and was feeding dogs and doing all this, getting firewood and all that. I was in pretty good shape, so just to tick those guys off, I hung around all summer doing that. <laughs> you know, and, um, and uh, so different jobs like that. I worked as a security guard for Bureau of Land Management's firefighting base in Anchorage and things like that. So later when I raced with the guys, it really kind of wasn't any big deal to me because I'd already been working with the guys, you know? And one of the things I love about Alaska is I never really saw that much, many people paid much attention to that anyway. Like, they don't care who you are. You gotta prove yourself if you wanna be respected by Alaskans is what I think. So at first, my dogs, I was just using them for work. I mean, I would uh, haul water, go get firewood with them. I don't know how many sleds I busted trying to get firewood with my dog team. But uh, actually, a friend of mine who was training down here in Soldatna for the Iditarod in the late 70s had me come down with a friend, and we were helping him. And he said, oh, there's this race this weekend. You should go try it out. I had never done a race. Never thought I was going to race because I just thought, oh, I don't even know what I'm doing, you know. Um, anyway, I won that race. It was here at Soldatna, the Kleins Mini Mart, five-mile race with five dogs, and I smoked everybody. I'm like, oh, I might be pretty good at this. And, you know, of course, a lot of the mushers I met when I was getting started were people that were racing dogs. And, you know, when you go help them, and of course you need as much help as you can get to get to the starting line of these races. So I'd help them out, and you'd watch their dog team disappear and think, oh, they're going on a thousand mile trip. What's that like? You know, so I kind of caught the bug like that. And um, one of the things that kind of gave me a taste for this too is uh, when I first came to Alaska, I went right out to Stony River other side of the Alaska range, you know, out with the villagers. That was where the dogs from the very first Iditarod came from as well, out there. And so having that taste of Bush, Alaska, I wanted to get back into it. So I got my wish when I ran my first Iditarod in 1980. 
And that was a wild race. To this day, there's still the most amount of people scratched from that race than any other race we've ever had. Half the whole field scratched. You know, and I'm just a dumb rookie going down the trail. Oh, that's cool. There's a broken sled right there. And fell where it burned, well burned, you know. And I had some great moments in that race. You know, I was actually running up in the front part of the race because I hadn't taken my layover as soon as other people. So um, I was running with Herbie Nagpuck and Joe May, and the two of them had stopped. No, it was actually Terry Atkins and, and uh, Joe May. The two of them had stopped at this T in the trail because they didn't know which way to go, and they figured they'd wait for me because they knew I was pretty close behind them, so I would go the same way as whichever way they decided to go. I had the maps. I figured out the right way to go, and we all went that way. And then uh, I got kind of lost in the farewell burn, and I was so dumb then. I, I'm, like, I'm out there and I'm seeing these big scat piles, and I'm like, dang, they got the biggest grizzly bears out here I've ever seen. It was buffaloes. <laughs> you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, yeah, so that was a wild race, and then it really showed me some things about Iditarod. Like, I remember, you know, going around, you've gone almost a thousand miles near on your sled, and come around Cape Nome, and there's the lights of Nome! And then I'm like, I'm starving. So I'm looking in my bag for a snack. By the time I look back up again, we are off the trail. <laughs> and I don't know how that happened, but I'm sitting there thinking, here I am in sight of Nome, and I am still off the trail having a hard time. So it kind of taught me, you never let your guard down. So anyway, I came in like 18th place out of 50, 60 some mushers that first time I ran the Iditarod. And the only reason I wasn't Rookie of the Year, I think, is because Donna Gentry, a little bit older and more experienced musher than I, who I'd been traveling with, she beat me to the punch on that. But I came back and raced it again the next year. It was actually two days faster, but placed two places behind, 20th place. So that's when I felt like, I'm going back to the drawing board. I know what kind of dogs I need now. I'm going to start raising my own dogs because I've been using some wonderful, great old experienced dogs. Like some of them had been on Jerry Riley's winning team when they were five years old. And they taught me a lot. Those dogs were so smart. But that's when I raised the, the litters that um, would end up helping me to win the Iditarod after those two races. I went back to rebuild and uh, you know raised the Cusco a little bit. But, and that's when I moved up to the village of Teller as well. Like, um, after racing the Iditarod in 81, I had a job with the crazy Czechoslovakian Jan Masek, musher, who was working with Cook Inlet Fisheries at the time, and he got me going with them as a fish buyer up in Chateaulip in this experimental fishing thing they were trying. And um, they closed the fishing down, and I ended up going north and working together with Joe Garney. And we put our dogs together and worked together with this team for probably like six years, seven years. And the village of Teller, it was kind of an interesting experience living up there. I mean, 300 people, you know, they've got a road that goes to Nome. Um, it was fabulous in a lot of ways. Um, for me, like I was really interested in the whole subsistence lifestyle that went with dog mushing. You know, like racing, it's sometimes just a bunch of going around in circles. Like, when you live in a village and have a dog team, I mean, we use the dogs for checking nets under the ice. Uh, we hunted moose with the dogs. We traveled to go see people. 
You know, in the spring, we'd make trips over to Brevik Mission to get all their seal blubber that they were going to throw out because they hunt way more seals than we do. And it was good, too, in a way, because, like, um, you know, like, I got to learn some of the old-style ways of doing things, but when I got there, like, Joe Garney was still worming his dogs with ptarmigan feathers. And I'm like, Joe, there are more high-tech ways to do this kind of thing. So, so I, you know, that made it a good partnership in a lot of ways. So um, he was actually, uh, let me see if I get this right now. I think he was second place in 84 with that dog team. I was first place in 85, and then he was third place with the same dog team in 86. Those were some really good dogs between the two of us. So, and then Teller, um, you know, I, I, when I lived up there, I mean, I was fishing, beach sailing, and, you know, subsistence fishing for the dogs and for, and for myself, and, uh, you know, again, living off the land a lot, and the people could see how hard I worked and how into the whole lifestyle that I was, and when I couldn't get any sponsors to go to the race, I mean, because it's expensive, right? The town of Teller actually sponsored me by raising money with bingo and pole tabs. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have never got in the race. So, I mean, that was so cool. I mean, I'm more proud of that than practically anything, really. <laughs> so, I mean, some of you guys know the story of that 85 race, and uh, it was an exceptionally difficult race. Um, they had very deep levels of snow. There was moose all over the place. I mean, Susan Butcher by far was the most well-known female musher at the time, and everybody thought she'd be the first one to win, but she was out traveling in the front of the pack uh, that one of the first nights of the race, and there's moose all over the place, and she didn't have a gun, and a moose killed a couple of her dogs, and she was out of the race. So um, that was part of the problem. Then we got up to Rainy Pass, and... Uh, Oh, there was, oh, those moose were so bad. I remember there was two French gals that were racing that year, too, Monique Benet and Claire Philippe. <clears throat> One of those mooses, actually, she got kicked off her sled, and the moose was standing over the top of her for like a half an hour. These were some seriously grumpy moose. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, but when we got to Rainy Pass, the weather socked in, and the pilots had not gotten the dog food across the other side of the range. So we couldn't have gone through the storm to continue because there was no dog food waiting for us on the other side. So for the first time in the history of the race, they, we were stuck there for like three days in Rainy Pass. Nobody had enough dog food. Um, you know, I was, I was getting ready to drill holes in the lake out there to start ice fishing for dog food. But, you know, um, friends like Roger Nordlum, he had uh, friends from Anchorage flying meat in, and they shared it with us. And so that was kind of a snafu in the race. And the same thing happened again in Ofer, um, where we were stuck for not as long. But it was kind of, they learned after that they got to send the dog food out a little quicker. So very deep snow years. I mean, uh, if you even got off the trail this much, you'd, you'd sink or have to get your snowshoes out. And of course, um, I was staying up in the front of the pack, and uh, you know, I don't know. Like I remember Joe Garney telling everybody at the Knick Bar before the race, uh, you know, you guys are going to underestimate her, and she's going to beat you, right? But. Um, I didn't really know, like I knew I had a good dog team, I wasn't quite sure how good of a musher I was, but I knew that I had four years of rebuilding that team, trying to get back to where I was at. So that was a big motivator to me when I got up to Shack 2, like, and it was storming. 
like you can't even believe. Um, so these ground storms up there are super dangerous. And of course, I knew everybody in Shack too, like after I'd worked there for being a fish buyer for a couple months. And I went to talk to one of the elders in town and uh, said, Franklin, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's going to clear up? And he said, well, maybe if you get halfway across, you'll see the lights of the village. Didn't even near work out like that. But um, I just knew I had to go for it. I had to try. And this was really psyching me out because like a couple years before I was even here at that spot, the same thing had happened. And Herbie Nayakpuk, who'd grown up in Shishmarav, one of the toughest mushers there ever was, he tried to go out in a blizzard. He was forced back into the checkpoint, said it was one of the worst nights he'd ever had in his life. And everybody stayed in Shaktu with playing basketball for two days. <laughs> I knew if that happened to me, there were faster teams that were going to beat me. So I figured I had gotten to that point, and I had trained out in storms. Like in Teller, on the stormiest days, when nobody's even leaving their house, I'd be out there running my dogs so they're ready for I did a rod. So I trusted those dogs to be able to do the storm. Wasn't so sure about myself, but we were going to try it. And we started out of Shack Tulik, and I'm talking to myself, this is so crazy, this is so crazy, this is so crazy. If I win, it will be worth it, though. <laughs> so maybe it's the first time it even crossed my mind. So it was such bad visibility, I couldn't even really see from one marker to the next. So what I would do is I would, I would keep one marker behind me, still in sight, and then I would hook the team down, walk out ahead, find the next marker, walk back to the dog team, mush up to that marker, do it again. I mean, it was exhausting, right? And um, another good story along those lines, a couple years later, Joe Garney was out in a storm like that, trying to find the markers. His leaders turned around and ditched him out there. <laughs> you know, I wonder if I would have ever even had that thought come into my mind if they would have picked up on it. Never even crossed my mind that they would do that. But that's something you've got to think about, too. <laughs> so um, I knew we weren't going to make it too far, but uh, I went as long as I could without getting lost and then camped out. And I found out the hard way, mushing between Teller and Nome, you don't want to sleep in your wet clothes when you've been out you know, walking and doing all this stuff. So it took like two hours to change out of my clothes. Um, but once I did, I was actually, I mean, I probably slept for eight hours in that sled bag. And I was actually kind of shook up because I was, like when planes went over the next morning, I was like, darn it, they'll know how close to town I am, you know, because the guys were all back in the checkpoint eating hotcakes and looking at the weather and wondering if they should get going. It was before we had all the GPSs and stuff. And, and I woke up thinking, darn, it's cold out there. And then I thought, well, if I don't get busy, I'm going to spend another night out here. So, I mean, it was a good 24 hours getting across that storm. Um, and I just about could have kissed the snowbank when I got to the other side, but I still had a couple of good hundred miles to go to get there. And it was blowing all the way in. It was like just blowing us over sideways, like actually um, on the stretch between uh, no, uh, uh, Topcock Hills and going into Nome. Uh, my sled was so light, my dogs would keep looking back at me because I'd get, keep, keep getting flipped over in the wind, just dragging behind and not offering very much resistance. And um, here I was only maybe 40 miles from the finish line, and I'm mushing along this trail. You couldn't hardly see anything. And I get back to these cabins, and I'm like, it doesn't look right. 
Anyway, I followed some snow machine tracks that go back to the little town of Solomon instead of safety to where I was supposed to be. And there was one guy there with a the light on. He said, oh, don't worry, those guys won't catch you. You want to come in for coffee? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, so I'm backtracking. And, you know, you're so tired out there, right? So I'm backtracking. You always look at the tracks all around you. I could see there was some tracks from another sled on the ground, and I'm thinking, oh, look at that. They have a two-pronged brake, just like mine. Wonder who was out here? And I'm going along, and it's like, don't! You know, my, my headlight was almost off. We were following our own tracks going backwards. <laughs> so luckily, I figured that one out. And then made it to um, safety, and then, uh, you know, I knew by listening to the radio updates, um, that the guys were at least five hours behind me. And so my friends in Nome thought this was super classy, is that I stayed at safety checkpoint 30 miles from the finish line for two hours, taking a well-needed rest, meant the difference between a 6.30 in the morning finish and an 8.30 in the morning finish. <laughs> so people in Nome appreciated that. And, you know, I tell you what, I really had no idea what was going to happen when I win. I mean, when I won the race. Um, you know, it was enough to stretch my imagination to just think, oh, I could maybe win. But to think of how big a deal it was going to be for women, I really, it never crossed my mind. Actually, the first time it really kind of hit me was when I was in White Mountain taking my eight-hour layover, and um, these two native gals are both like this big, and they kind of come up to me, and they're like, you're going to beat all the men. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. But um, it was, <laughs> you know, so that was kind of cool. And it's, it's been really amazing over the years, you know, to have had that effect. Um, you know, if you can do something to help motivate people and give them, set a good example, I think it's great. But, yeah, no, it was wild. Um, you know, so can you imagine living in a village of 300 people? And you get flown to the Plaza Hotel in New York City for this award from the Women's Sports Foundation. I mean, I've never been east of the Mississippi in my life, right? And uh, all these people, like, oh my gosh, it was just mind-blowing. I mean, I was scared to death to even fly in planes back there. Like, the learning curve of all the things I've done since doing that. It's, it's been fabulous, really, because it's really helped me you know, develop myself as a person in a lot of other ways, you know. And I really think it's true that if you're setting sports goals for yourself and, you know, you get that confidence, it, it teaches you so much that passes on to the rest of your life. Like, even just things like goal setting. Like, oh, I remember when I got my stupid mortgage for my house and Homer. Like, I thought, oh, I'm like, imagine it was the Iditarod, you know. you got to break it down into bits, you know. Things, the skills that you learn to have the endurance for doing this, it really does translate over to the rest of your life. I mean, just being able to do these speaking gigs, oh, I used to be scared to death to talk to people, to people in crowds like this. But, you know, I wrote those books after winning the race, um, was getting all this fan mail, especially from kids. So I started out doing talks for school kids. And then their parents would show up, and I'm like, oh, they're just people. And then, you know, then you just kind of get into it. And my dad was one of my best coaches. He was a college professor. And, and um, you know, he, he, I did some talks at his college down in Arizona. And he, he, he was the one that taught me into getting a computer. It's like, you need a word processor. Oh, no, no, I don't need that. Yeah, you do. So 
you know, that was kind of neat too. But uh, yeah, I've gotten to do some amazing things. I mean, racing over in the Alps. I've raced in Bear Grease and the Cusco 300. I've done the Open Class Championship race twice. Uh, that's a whole other deal, that speed racing. I love it. I mean, I just want to know all about these dogs. And I'm still, I only have like six, seven dogs right now, but we go out and have a blast. So I get um, older, retired dogs from other racers. And last year, I made the biggest score because I talked Pete Kaiser out of his 2017 winning Iditarod lead dog. And her name is Morrow. She's 11 years old right now, and she is so smart I wouldn't play cribbage with her. And just, and just such a sweet dog. I mean, so it's been really cool knowing these dogs. Um, I love the community that we have in mushing. I mean, any dog musher out there, I mean, it's... You know, people just don't understand how much work we put into this lifestyle and how involved it is and how satisfying it can be in a lot of ways. And, you know, and so those dog mushers and, and the people that help around the race, too, in a lot of ways, um, that's a very important part of this. But anyway, I think that's kind of most of my story. Now I'm doing these talks for Princess Cruises. Boy, you talk about endurance, baby. <laughs> I mean, for, since the year 2000, I've been doing about 130 shows a, a summer. You know, 500 people at a shot sometimes with Princess Cruises. But what I love about doing this, like, part of it is that it's very intense, just like racing. You know, you gotta be there on time, you can never be sick, you gotta have it together, you know? And I love it that I get to tell people about our sport and tell them, no, this is not bad to do for dogs. Dogs love this. And it's great because we've got such a big sled dog tour scene in Juneau and Southeast anyway. So people go see the dogs, see how happy and, and well-balanced they are, and then I can come and tell them more about our sport. You know, so they understand it and get it, that it's, this is one of the coolest things that you can do with dogs. So again, it's, it's uh, and then the connections you meet and people that, you know, have, have uh, you know, like I meet a lot of women that like, I was the first sheriff in my town. And things like that are just really kind of cool. But anyway, um, I think I'm going to turn it over to Jeff now. And if you guys do have questions, we're both going to take questions at the end. Sound good? Okay, cheers. If you're just tuning in to the Kenai Conversation, you're listening to a December 7th presentation at Kenai Peninsula College that highlights two Iditarod legends. Libby Riddles was the first woman to win the race in 1985, and Jeff Schultz has been photographing the race for over 40 years. Well, that was cool. I learned a lot. Libby, thank you. That was great. There's actually a couple photos of Libby in here. So, um, I'm just faking it till I make it. Been doing that for 40 years. So, here we go. So, um, this is what Mike talks about, documenting the last great race. Um, I'm here tonight really by the grace of God and because of the unending help of my wife, Joan. Um, there was uh, one time where, you know, they call it the last great race on earth, right? Well, I was involved in a plane crash and she came home after that. She, um, when she came home, she had a shirt on that said, this is your last great race. <laughs> anyway, um, I agree with Libby as far as um, 
as far as I'm concerned, I don't believe my career life would be nearly as rich and full if, if I didn't live in Alaska, and especially part of my dear. Uh, for those of you who wonder, well, who is this Jeff Schultz guy? Um, you probably you might know my name, you might not. Certainly for my bitter ride, you would. But somewhere along the line, you've likely seen some of my photography. Um, when I was a kid, I just wanted to do outdoor wildlife nature photography. I even wrote to National Geographic and asked the photo editor, how could I be part of one of their photographers? And he said, Jeff, we're up to our eyeballs in photographers, but up to our ankles in good ideas. So he said, go to college, learn something, and then take pictures of it. Bummer is I didn't go to college. Um, in any case, in high school, I read a book about a person who lived off the land, and it, living, growing up in California, I wanted to get as far away from the people in pavement there as I could. So I moved to Alaska, similar to Libby, at age 18, three months after graduating from high school, and chasing my dream of building a log cabin and living off the land. Um, that never did materialize, but I started my photo business while still working at a Sizzler Steakhouse Anybody remember Sizzler in Canada and in Anchorage? Anyway, I was 19 years old in 79, and I was doing, I did over uh, 400 weddings and portraits. At 22, I was a full-time photographer. My first unique Alaska opportunity came in the winter of 79 and 80. Guys ever remember the Dr. Schultz band? Anybody? Anyway, folk music. They were the official Iditarod band, which I didn't know. But in any case, Joan and I, was Joan was my girlfriend at the time. We went to White uh, West High School for a concert in the Dr. Schultz band, but that's the reason we went with Dr. Schultz band. Anyway, Joe Senior stood up because it turned out that it was a actually a um, a fundraiser for the Iditarod. I didn't even know how to spell, pronounce, or even know what Iditarod was, but he stood up because they had a lot of um, Iditarod people you know, stand up to recognize them. Anyway, Joan leaned over and said, "Doesn't he have a kind face?" And I thought to myself, um, I'm, I'm doing weddings and portraits. If I could photograph famous Alaskan like that, maybe that would help my business. So I wrote to Joe, and he wrote back and said, sure, come on out. So but the first thing Joe did, of course, if you know Joe, anybody here met Joe Senior? Okay. <laughs> anyway, the first thing he knows, you have to have tea before you do anything. But in any case, we sat down at his table, and then he decided to start telling me, pick, uh, telling me things and showing me pictures of what he did. So this is in the Army. He took this picture back in the 40s and 50s when he moved to Alaska. He's taking a crashed airplane off of Mount Susitna, homesteading at Flathorn Lake on the Iditarod Trail. as his wife, Vi, with a black bear. He's, he, he flew airplanes. He loved sled dogs. He loved dogs. <laughs> He's taking his dogs to a summer location. Um, and, then, and then hunting. So Joe was doing everything I thought I wanted to do. Um, and he kept talking. He showed pictures of the 1967 centennial race called the Leonard Supple Memorial Race. as the predecessor to the Iditarod. Anyway, and then he also showed me a picture of him leaving the Iditarod Mulcahy uh, Stadium. And then he showed me this picture. It was shot in 1976. Anybody know, seen this picture before? Yes. This is 200 sled dogs hooked up on Kinnick Road and with Joe's lead dog, Feats, in the lead. We have a radio. There's a bus in the background that has, uh, you can see it on the upper left, has uh, four flat tires and the driver has his brakes on and they still couldn't keep it there. But anyway, <laughs> he also showed me pictures of his most recent adventure was going to the summit of Denali. 
the one, the first and only doctor who hit the summit of, of Mount McKinley, or Denali now. And that's that map, the summit. Does anybody, did anybody know he did that? Um, anyway, not many people know about that because it just wasn't, it just wasn't um, put out there. But in any case, so all those adventures was exactly what I wanted to do. So at the end of the day, he literally tells me, Jeff, I've got 300 sled dogs here. Pick out 20 and you can take them to Nome. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a chichaco, I don't know squat about any of this. He said, well then come take pictures for us. And so he introduced me to Dick Mackey. Dick was race manager at the time, um, and also the 78 champion. And Dick really didn't want me out on the trail. He, you know, Joe tried to get everybody involved with the idea around. And so this is just another harebrained idea Joe had, according to Dick. But anyway, um, he said, well, we don't really need you out there hitchhiking, but there's an oral surgeon in Wasilla named Bon Mitten, and he wants to fly on the trail. So I contacted him, I paid him 500 bucks, and he flew me from uh, Anchorage to as far as McGrath, that's how far the $500 would take me. Then he decided, well, I'll pay for the gas to go to the town of Iditarod just because I want to see it. So, um, so I'm photographing, this is, these are photos from the 1980 Iditarod, that was, or 81 Iditarod, that's my first Iditarod. And um, then I flew to Nome commercially, and I donated the photos to Dorothy Page for the annual and for the runner and all those. And so then they came back the next year and they said, well, Jeff, these are some pretty good pictures. If you pay for all your processing of your film and donate it again next year, we'll pay for your pilot and you can eat our food that's donated. <laughs> and that's basically, that handshake deal is how I became the official photographer of the Iditarod. And I shared that title with Jim Brown for a long time. Jim was a great guy. He saved me places to sleep on the floor. Um, just a wonderful guy. He shot all black and white. I shot color and black and white, mostly color for me. Um, and we both donated our photos. So Joe and I ended up becoming really good friends. Um, he's a photographer, he's a lot of photography. I did a lot of photography, so I photographed him doing all kinds of stuff, even bringing Santa to the university center. And, uh, anyway, we're, the, we're real good friends, even to the point where 30-some uh, years later, I was the executor of his will because his best friend, Bill Levine, uh, was not well enough to do it. So another unique opportunity, and that was um, Bill Devine in the summer of, uh, or in the spring of 1982, he said, Jeff, you really should photograph Joe and Mount McKinley. It's just a great idea. He said, I've always wanted to do it, but I think you, you have more time around with what he said exactly. But with a lot of photography, you know, you look at the picture and you go, yeah, that's a neat picture. It's the backstory that's kind of the fun stuff, right? So the backstory of this, and let me back up, speaking of that, and that is um, one of the things Bill Devine taught me, he said, Jeff, you're recording history. And one of the things that I, I just like to photograph dog teams, and I just love small dog teams, big landscape. Just put that in front of me all day for 40 years, it was great. Um, but anyway, he said, you're recording history, so don't just shoot these pictures of dog teams. Shoot the people, shoot the event, shoot, shoot what's really happening. So that kind of stuck with me when I went along. But in any case, back to this. So <clears throat> Joe always told me when I go out to his place, and he said he's got uh, he trains his lead dogs well enough that he could write his signature in the snow with a lead dog. You know, G hop 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 G. You know, just basically a huge whatever quarter mile signature. But in any case, um, so uh, this is the spring of 1982, 
And you know, this is how uh, in the springtime, this is April, it warms up in the afternoon, freezes hard at night, and it's rock solid the next morning. Well, that's what happened here. But Joe, he g and hawed the dogs around, um, but then he gives them a haw, and they get a hard left haw, and the sled goes fishtailing out, it caught the side of the runner, and Joe goes flying over the sled. And what's the number one rule in dog mushing? Never let go. And Joe didn't let go. He also didn't get up. And so my buddy Ron and I, we just, what the heck? So we run out there, and there's Joe, just covered in blood. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I just do? I made the father of the idea. And uh, he said, well, Jeff, did you get some good pictures? And I said, yeah, I think I did pretty good. He said, well, I'm pretty small in the frame, I'm sure. Let's go around again. <laughs> I don't think so, Joe. But anyway, so a couple weeks later, this photo was published in the uh, Anchorage Times. This is really the photo that started my career. I didn't really think that much of it, quite frankly, because I was there and it just did another picture. But people started writing me and asking for copies of the photo. So, and I got paid 50 bucks to do it. So I was, or 50 bucks to have it published. I thought I had the big time. Um, anyway, so now it's been 40 years um, uh, of photographing the Iditarod, and I'll get a little bit more into that. But so in my file, there's over 70,000 photos in the library. Every one of them is captured with who, what, when, where, why. And, um, and not to mention there's three to five times that many that are in the dumper. You know, the only difference between an amateur photographer and a professional is the professional only shows the good stuff. <laughs> there's a ton of crud that's, that's not there. So for me, it's all about the adventure. It's all about the adventure, just like Libby, yeah, just like Libby was talking about. There's a lot of stuff that happens between the checkpoints. To me, the checkpoints, I get bored at the checkpoints. So I'm, I'm trying to travel between the trail, typically by snow machine. If I'm going for a long distance, I'll hire somebody or I'll borrow a snow machine if I'm going a short distance, you know, just a few miles out of the checkpoint. I'm a terrible snow machine driver. Um, or my pilot, who are all volunteer pilots, will we'll land in the middle of nowhere. This is by Egypt Mountain, about 15 miles out of Rome, and then walk to the trail. Or if I have a really good friend that has a helicopter, um, I've done this twice with all helicopter. But in any case, I love that kind of adventure. So for me, it's all about being between the checkpoints. Okay, so I love being in between the checkpoints. To photograph either something different or a different subject. This is Happy Dog. It's, uh, it's what we call Happy Dog anyway. Um, this has been well published as well. Or I like catching the decisive moment, that one instant of a second. This is shot at 14 frames a second. <laughs> Spray and pray, as I like to call it. Uh, then in 1989, I did, um, I did a lot of stuff in 1989. But anyway, 1989, I decided to do something totally different because it's all about getting a different photo. So I buried a camera in the middle of the trail and used a radio remote control. Now, some people would say, well, weren't you worried about the, the camera? Yes, but it's insured, so then I have no But anyway, um, so the dog team's running down. First time I ever did it, I only have 36 frames. Um, and the what I didn't know, though, was how it would affect the dog. I didn't even think of it. It even crossed my mind. And so as the dog team is coming at me, I start firing it just before the lead dogs get there. And the lead dogs literally jumped off the trail. 
I jumped off the trail, bounded about, I don't know, three, four, five paces beyond the camera, and then the lead dogs came back. And then, and so that's how I ended up getting these pictures. This is Guy's blankenship, by the way. And so, so Guy comes by and he says, what the heck was that? And I just said, I don't know. <laughs> Because it was much too, it was too many words to, to describe. So I buried a camera in another truck. Anyway, it was easier. I just lied. Anyway, so I'm always trying to do a different angle. So even at the start line, this is kind of your average start photo, right? Well, everybody and their brother has this. So I decided to at least get up on a ladder and get something a little bit different. And then get down low. You know, I'm literally on my belly. There's me in the black in the middle there, getting on my belly or on a ladder behind it. I like this shot because it really shows what's going on, it shows everything that's happening, the big crowd and all that. Or get on a ladder outside the arena and photographing, I mean, I don't know why these people go six, eight, ten people deep when you can't see anything. Go out to where Tony's at on the trail and watch and get right next and give him a high five. Anyway, it is exciting. Five, four, three, two, one, go. And then this is my all-time favorite. I did a round photo, which is on the cover of my book, Chasing Dogs. And just, I told some people beforehand, <clears throat> I had planned on doing this book for quite a while. My working title was Shooting Dogs. <laughs> That's what I do. I shoot dogs. I shoot moose. I shoot landscapes. Anyway, my editor said I wouldn't. She wouldn't work with me if I, <laughs> if I called it Shooting Dogs. And I'll shoot you too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this is the, this is Danny Davidson flying me doing an aerial photo. Where's he looking? He's looking at what I'm looking at. <laughs> and the reason he's doing that is because he's so dang good at this. I, I tell him, I, I give him three points. I say I want the dog team, I want that lake, and then I want that peak. So he's trying to line all that up, which comes in a split second. So he's not looking where he's going. He is, it's the big air, small, small airplane rule. What are the chances of hitting somebody? Anyway, so he, he's just he's fantastic. Unfortunately, he just passed away this last summer, which is sad. One of the things, we don't just photograph. We do extra duty. So we went and picked up some uh, drop dogs at a checkpoint and brought them back home. But then, um, uh, what I try also to do is to get every trail condition I can, which, um, so if I hear mushers saying, oh yeah, there's open water at such and such, I want to be there. So let's fly there, let's snow machine there, whatever. Who's in the sunglasses? So I, so I snow machined back to, white, uh, to Old Woman from Human Creek because I heard there was overflow there. <clears throat> and the dogs had to go through the overflow. They didn't have to, but many of them did. Some of them went right around it. No problem. And then the musher ended up going in <laughs> to lead the dogs out of the overflow. Or else like this, Rick Swenson, this is on, uh, just after you come down the Blueberry Hills before Shack Tulip, um, the lagoon there's oftentimes blown free. I mean, the dogs have just no control sometimes. This is actually Paul Gebhardt. Um, this is outside Unilakley on the way to Shack Tulip. <laughs> and then open water again. <laughs> Just amazing. So, this is a plane crash. This is unfortunate what happened to me in 1992. You know, covering the race, um, 
there's a lot of things we go through. This is a real unfortunate accident. I'm not going to talk about it tonight. It's in the book if you want to read about it. But this was my old notes. 19, this was, picture was taken in February of 1992. And um, this is myself six weeks later. I had um, five surgeries. There's five metal plates and 24 screws in my head. So when my wife Joan says, you have a screw loose. <laughs> possible. It's possible. In any case, the stories of chasing dogs over there. Um, this, again, the re I love photos like this outside the checkpoint. This is Allie's uncle. Again, one of my favorite uh, photos. <laughs> my wife, a lot of people ask me, what's your favorite photo? And there's really no way to, to quantify that or figure it out. But my wife told me, Jeff, your favorite photo is your next photo. So I'm always looking for another photo. In any case, um, I call this my $100 photo. Why was it $100? Well, nowadays, we do have GPS, and there's, um, we know pretty much when a dog team's going to come into the checkpoint. So I'm looking at the tracker that's out there, and, and I'm looking at um, Allie's traveling at whatever, seven miles an hour coming into Koyak. And I look at my little app, and it says the sunset's going to set in 20 minutes, or whatever. And, uh, and it says, and I do the math, and well, Libby's not going to be there for 35 minutes. I said, I got to get out there. It's going to be a beautiful sunset. So <clears throat> I, I asked around, does anybody want to uh, uh, rent me their snow machine? And nobody wanted to rent me their snow machine, which is a good idea because I'm not going to snow machine. Right? <laughs> but um, one guy said, well, I'll take you out there. And I said, okay, um, how much? And he said, 100 bucks. Far out, let's do it. Now this is all coming out of my pockets, not a dinner runs, because I just want the photo. Anyway, so we go out there, and we photograph uh, Allie coming at us, and then we photograph her. I'm always shooting with two cameras. So I was a telephoto lens, here's my wide angle, second body, it's the same spot. And then we paced her, so we did the best we could um, to pace her and got off the trail and got different angles of her um, coming along. And then um, she ended up getting closer to Koyak, and closer to Koyak, there's a bunch of pressure ridges. So there's no way for us to pass her safely with all these uh, tight pressure ridges. So we ended up having to drive, make our own trail over pressure ridges, which is again why I'm glad I wasn't driving. <laughs> so we're doing, she's doing like six, eight miles an hour, we're doing like three, four miles an hour, and trying to catch up as best we could um, when we had some uh, clean snow. Anyway, we ended up, did get in front of her, ended up getting this shot. I just love this color of light. And then ended up photographing her just coming as she uh, was coming up off of the sea ice into the village. And then there she is checking in. So we had another unique opportunity that had a little bit to do with Iditarod. Um, but that, uh, and this next unique opportunity came to me. It's actually veiled in tragedy. I don't know if you guys remember, but in 2017, my son Ben was an Anchorage firefighter, and he um, tumbled down the ladder 95 feet, had a traumatic brain injury. By the grace of God, he's alive today and doing really well. But um, at that time, John Van Zyl gets all of me two months after the accident and says, Jeff, why don't we do a fundraiser for Ben? And I, you know, my head's in the clouds, I'm hoping my son stays alive. But anyway, he says, let's do a fundraiser. I said, whatever. He says, um, send me a print of this picture. It went on my website. 
send me a print of that picture. I have no idea what he's talking about or thinking of. And, um, and he, I, so I, I actually, I ordered the print through Costco, which I never <laughs> But anyway, it's just the simplest thing to do. So I ordered it through Costco, went to his house, and whatever it was, a month or so later, he sends me back this. So he literally painted on top of my photo. This is, this is Mitch Seavey at the Summer of Rainy Pets. <clears throat> and, and he painted on top of it. And we made a printout out of it, uh, made 125 copies, raised $10,000 in profit. Um, so that was a unique opportunity for me to, A, you know, John Van Zyl is internationally known. Uh, he's the official Iditarod artist, I'm the official Iditarod photographer. So it, Kind of was cool that we collaborated. He actually talked to me years ago and said, well, Jeff, why don't we collaborate on something? I had no idea what he's talking about, but again, sure, collaborate with John Manzano, you bet. But, um, uh, but it just never came around until after Ben's accident. In any case, there's a number of photos, or a number of paintings and photos throughout the book that look like this. And pretty much throughout the book, it's a yin yang thing. That's my favorite bear picture on the left. He put his complimentary bear picture on the right. My wife, Joan, wrote about the bear picture. His wife, Jana. My wife, Joan, J-O-A-N, his wife, Jana, J-O-N-A, wrote about the bear. So it's, it's, we call ourselves the four J's. Jeff, Joan, John, Jana. Anyway, it's a yin-yang thing throughout the book, so that's here tonight as well. And then he asked me to be part of his official Iditarod print collection. So this is my photograph. The whole thing is, is my photograph with the mountains, the sun, the dog team, the snow in the foreground. But John painted in the cabin on the left. He actually painted the musher waving, because the musher was just holding on to the sled. He painted in the cabin in the background and the musher on the right. And actually, if you, you look here in the foreground, you see what looks like snow is trampled. Well, that was my mistake. I, that's where I thought I wanted to make this picture from, was right there. So I walked in and I, and I was going to take the picture from there and I said, no, that's a bad idea. So I come back out and so those are my tracks. In the frame. <laughs> and he painted the, he painted the, the little uh, tulies in there, the alders and stuff, to make it look like, you know, moose was browning or something. So they look like moose tracks. Anyway, so, so throughout the race, you know, 40 years now have gone by. And I've, I've photographed from 40 above zero to 60 below zero. That's the coldest I've ever photographed. And I photographed in those ground storms, not nearly as bad as Libby, because I wouldn't want to be out there. Um, and I photographed at the summit of Rainy Pass a million times. But in 2019, I, I was literally burnt out. I just could not, it was, this was December or something. And I said, I just can't do another, I did a run. I just can't do it. I can't photograph another dog team out there because it seems like it's the same thing over and over. So I took a couple friends of mine uh, that are really creative um, to dinner and I asked them, what could I do to do something different? They said, Jeff, why don't you do portraits out there? They said, I've done portraits out there. They said, yeah, but why don't you do something like this thing called um, Humans of New York, where you not only take their portrait, but then you tell it their story, right down their story. So I thought to myself, well, that could be good, but I want something different. I want, the photography has to be cool somehow. These pictures, to me, and humans of New York, they're kind of interesting, but they're not that great. So, you know, I'm looking at the stuff I've done in the past. That's not that great either, because it's, you know, shows all the junk in the background. But they said, well, let's do some unique lighting. 
and let's take a background out there. And so that's what we ended up doing. We did some experimenting with a light and a background. And that first year in 2019, I shot 250 of these, what I call faces of Iditarod. And what's unique about this, I mean, and we do this all over. We do it indoors, outdoors, it's snowing, it's freezing, it's whatever. And what's unique about this is that we then write down who they are, where they live, their occupation, all that, what temperature we photograph it. And I ask them three questions about why they got involved with the Iditarod, how they got involved with the Iditarod, and what one of their favorite experiences is. And then I also ask them, fourth question, what in life do you know for sure? goes right to your heart. How would you answer that question? What in life do you know for sure? I do get a lot of death and taxes. <laughs> but in any case, um, to me, it's just, it, this effect with Bill Devine suggested I do. This is recording history. This is recording real people out there. So I'm not just photographing mushers. This is a volunteer that's been out there for 10 or so years. I'm photographing folks in the village that are just out there bringing a bucket of water to somebody or that are just there. I'm photographing even, um, the volunteers and the mushers and spectators. And so, um, now when you, I'm about to share an audio with you. This is, this got 88 year old Dick Newton from Takata. He's been on every single I did around. And in any case, I photographed him at 88 years old. He passed away about a year and a half later. So I'm very fortunate that I have his portrait that looks like this and his voice. So take. Take a listen to when you hear an 88-year-old gentleman say something. They asked us to uh, break the trail down to Diderod one time, and we run clear out of snow, but we kept on going. So, I don't know, it, it just brings the whole thing to life, you know? I love this light on this. You know, as a photographer, I'm looking at this light. It shows every jot and tittle on a person's face. Many women have said, take my picture down, or they refuse to be photographed. But I love this light because it's the real person. Now, we, we did decide to photograph dogs as well. So, um, you, I mean, how easy do I have it? I mean, it's so easy when I'm photographing dogs and a landscape. It's super easy. So in any case, um, photographing humans is tough, but photographing dogs, that's another story. But um, you can just see all these animals that are great. Now, I consider this an anti-PETA statement. When you, I, obviously I can't interview the dog, so I interview the musher. And um, when you listen to a musher talk about the personality of these dogs, I contend that there's dog mushers that know more about their animals than some parents know about their kids. You should soon crawl on your lap and curl up and you know get lots of love and as anything. She wants to be the top female of the kennel. She runs around posturing and showing off to the other ladies, um, but then flirting with all the boys. <laughs> I mean, who would say that? <laughs> that's classic. So that's what I, I um, that's what I have for you tonight. As far as I did write, I would support you looking at the face of I did write project. It's 2019 was the first year I did it. There's no money in this. You can support it for a couple bucks a month if you like on Patreon, but um, take a look at it and see what you think and share it with other people. There's a thousand forty-nine faces up there now. Um, I just love it. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. 
A special thank you to Kenai Peninsula College and to Libby Riddles and Jeff Schultz. You can hear the Kenai Conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Hunter Morrison. Thanks for tuning in.